Hello and welcome to the Business of Data podcast. My name is Catherine King and I'll be your host. In this podcast, we chat to senior executives from a range of departments, industries and functions, all about their passions, experiences and challenges within data analytics. Let's go ahead and dive straight into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business of Data podcast brought to you by Corinium. This week, we are talking all about freeing the data and durable needs, which, uh, as a title, will become clear throughout the conversation we're having today. But to chat to me about durable needs and freeing the data, we have invited the wonderful Alex Goldwyn, who is the Chief Data Officer for Morningstar. Now, if you haven't had the pleasure of meeting Alex, just a few intro facts to get you up to speed. Speed. Alex has been the CDO for Morningstar since October 2019 and prior to this has worked within BlackRock, Bank of America Securities and Lemon Brothers as well. Now if you can't find Alex at his work desk you're most likely to find him spending time with his family traveling the world. Welcome Alex, how are you doing? All right. Thanks for having me. I'm doing just well, and I appreciate you having me on this podcast. You are most welcome. Now, whenever anyone tells me that they love traveling, my heart just longs a little bit because obviously over the last couple of years, it's been a bit difficult to travel uh, to as many places uh, due to the pandemic. But I do believe you still managed to visit some nice places over the over the last few years, right? Uh, yes, 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 we did. So uh, uh, didn't let COVID completely stop us. So so we, we did manage to um, spend a couple of weeks in Hawaii in 2020 and um, went to Iceland um, in 2021, went to Italy a couple of months ago, and I just came back from my first business trip uh, to London, my first international business trip. I've been, uh, I've been traveling domestically quite a bit, but it felt really good to actually get on the plane and um, and go visit uh, clients um, uh, away from the US. So, uh, so yeah, bet. as far as I'm concerned, fingers crossed, things are back to normal. Although I did bring a little bit of a uh, COVID gift back from London, but as far as I'm concerned, that's the price of um, travel. So yeah, it's okay. we'll, we'll, we'll just have to deal with that. It's so funny, isn't it? Traveling for business, it used to feel so normal and now it doesn't. It yep. feels very uh, strange and privileged and lots of different other emotions uh, mixed in between. It is, it is uh, funny. My first trip uh, post, uh, like during COVID, I, um, I, I went to our uh, office in Chicago and that was probably uh, uh, like September or uh, I think it was uh, September, October of 2020. So things were still, you know, fairly tight. And uh Usually I, I travel a lot, so uh, I wouldn't even think twice about it. Just like, you know, packing would take about mm-hmm. seven minutes and you go to the airport and you're half away by the time you're going through security. <laughs> this time around, uh, uh, I started packing like maybe a day and a half in advance. Yeah. Uh, I was up at four in the morning, kind of like, you know, trying to think, have I forgotten anything? So uh, you lose your muscle memory after about a year of uh, not going to the airport. So uh, I was regained it. I was exactly the same the first time I traveled into London for, for work. I got off at Paddington Station, big station in, in London for, for those uh, listening abroad. And I was about to get on the tube and I was thinking, oh my goodness, which tube am I taking and where am I going? Because I just thought the train's going to take me to where I need to go. And it's like I say, it's so funny that uh, what was what was very much our norm has become has become not. But Let's let's uh, start our chat here, Alex. And I think the easiest place for us to start is actually if you give us a little bit of a rundown of what a CDO looks like, what that role looks like for you in Morningstar. 
Uh, thanks, and this is a great uh, open-ended question because uh, I, I've never been a CDO before. I generally come from a non-technology uh, portfolio analytics and data analytics back background. So uh, uh, probably because that's me, but I never actually viewed a CDO role as a purely technology role. I actually viewed most and foremost, uh, first and foremost, a, uh, a business development role that has to enable uh, business growth with the use of technology as opposed mm -hmm. to the other way around. So uh, uh, many people will probably disagree with me, but uh, from my perspective, the role of CDO is really sometimes I call myself or view my role as uh, passing uh, legislation through the laws of Congress. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily about writing the legislation, but building consensus across the organization to make sure that we are agreeing on a specific solution and then execute that solution which means that from the CDO perspective, I view my role of uh, making sure that everybody agrees on the target we're painting and then put the right technology people in charge on actually building solution to get to the target. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I love that you say that it might might have people disagree. This is a brilliant thing about podcasts is we just send it into the into the world and uh, you don't necessarily have the, the backlash of uh, our other formats. So don't worry, you're, you're, you're fine to express that. Here. Yeah, and, that's, and that's perfectly fine because uh, CDO is probably one of those roles that is, um, you know, fairly loosely defined. Oh, 100%. If you have somebody about like the role of COO or CFO, uh, that generally comes with a pretty well-defined job description. CDO, uh -huh. and, and, and the beauty about CDO is uh, every person has somewhat of a luxury to actually define in what that role really means. A hundred percent. And I think that's where some leaders have struggled in the past is where they've tried to do that cookie cutter approach of what a CDO is. And it's not necessarily tailored to that organization, to those business needs, to that context. And then you end up in a very difficult position because it is, as you say, it's not like a CFO where there's kind of a standard way of running things. There's certain things you need to achieve. A CDO's role can look so, so different depending on the industry, the size of the organization, the geolocation, just so many variables. Now, you've told me before and you, you kind of hinted to it there that you're incredibly mission driven dive into that for me what does that mean for you uh so so for me it uh, it means that uh first and foremost i'm uh, trying to see what is the ultimate outcome that uh, we're trying to achieve and uh, who cares and once I figure it out and we agree on who cares, that essentially becomes our mission. So uh, uh, one of the things that I really like about Morningstar that actually attracted me at Morningstar and things that kind of uh, I saw uh, continuity between BlackRock and Morningstar is that both organizations are incredibly uh, mission driven mm. and put clients in the case of BlackRock or investors in, in the case of Morningstar as their main priority. So everything that we do ultimately feeds to the notion of empowering investors. And uh, when you use that as a litmus test of everything we do, uh, there is an idea, there is a project, there is a, um, an opportunity. And uh, when you actually feel like, you know, bring it up and shaking it down, it's like, you know, what are the components that fall out of that idea? And uh, to what extent, how, when, and where it is going to empower investors it helps you figure out what are you really solving? And then you figure out like, yo, um, what is the right solution? Who is going to do it? So asking that question, why? As the mm -hmm. first question you're asking, that's like practically 
how I view myself uh, uh, and the organization has been mission driven because everybody will say that they're mission driven. You know, this is like, how can somebody say anything uh, opposite to it? Yeah. What it really means, like, you know, if mission becomes a religious statement or a slogan, you're completely missing out. So um, I think it has to have like a really strong practical implication. Mm-hmm. So for me, I view mission driven as the first question anything goes with the why we're doing it then what is success going to look like? Then you go into how you're going to build it. And then ultimately who's going to be in charge. So when you ask those four questions in this order, I view it's like, you know, it comes mission first, which is why. It's really interesting because we we have had guests uh, join us on the podcast before where they're really pushing this culture of asking why rather than just, you know, the business might say we want to do this and the data department says, OK, let's do it and run with it. And then you get a few months, a couple of years down the line and you realize that you're not actually doing the thing that the business thought it wanted because it may not have realized the capabilities or the resources, etc. Or you're not asking why and therefore you're not actually mapping yourself against those business needs the strategies the kpis or whatever it is so uh certainly part of this growing revolution that i'm seeing in in the data leaders and data space of this pushing back and saying well actually what is it you do want and how does that align to that to that wider picture and i know we're I think Catherine, in a, in a, in, a, in a, uh, many organizations people might have seen that in many cases people are jumping and sort of like you know starting to climb the mountain and when you ask them why you're doing that, the answer is, well, because so-and-so told us to do it. And so-and-so could be somebody really high up in the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, that's uh, not the right answer or maybe not the best answer because uh, maybe so-and-so needs it done because it's a lot, it aligns with the organization's mission. But if, team is, if, if the team in charge uh, only views it as a directive from a person, it is problematic because if that person leaves and those are a new person in charge, all of a sudden you're losing that direction, right? Yes. So, so uh, a person is a very poor common denominator for your long-term strategy. Absolutely, especially in the context of what we're where we're recording right now. And I realize uh, lots of people listen to the podcast at, at different times, but the moment in time that we were recording, we are very much within the great resignation where people are moving around a lot. So it's not just even conceptual. This is the reality that that stakeholder that you mentioned who has told us we're, we're going to jump and this is how high they may be leaving. That is the reality that, that we're in. So 100%. Now, at the top of the conversation, Alex, I mentioned that you are passionate about freeing the data, which naturally, I think, infers at least that the data is fettered in some way and that it needs freeing. Talk me through that. Uh, So uh, at at a very high level, conceptually, I divide the entire population of the world into two broad camps. There's a camp that has data and then there's a camp that needs data. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive camps. Like, you know, most of us are both owners and consumers of data. So uh, I view the notion of freeing the data is what's the best and the fastest way for data to flow from those who have it to those who need it. In other words, from producers to consumers. And uh, uh, in order to figure out, you know, so, so how free should the data be? If you look at the producers, uh, you know one of their their characteristics is probably paranoia, and that's that's uh, that's rightfully so, because uh, there's fear that uh, your data is going to be uh, misused, it's going to leak to places it's not supposed to leak, it's going to be uh, 
uh, is going to get you in trouble because there could be personal identifiable information or any other sort of uh, valuable uh, insight that is not for public uh, consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, on the consumer uh, side, uh, they counter that producers' paranoia with their greed. And greedy means uh, I want to get as much, as quickly, as easily as possible, the least amount of clicks. So on the one hand, you want to put a lot of barriers in, like, you know, I, uh, I want guards in the door to make sure the data doesn't go where it's not supposed to. Yeah. On the other hand, it's like, you know, I just want to minimize the amount of clicks. So, so I view the notion of freeing the data as not necessarily like, you know, creating the technological framework to let data go from A to B, which is absolutely the, uh, the necessity. If you don't have a highway system, you have no chance of getting your trucks from coast to coast. But uh, it's it's uh, it's more uh, than that, and that uh, that kind of like gets me to uh, what you you mentioned in the beginning of this uh, podcast, like you know durable needs, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, understanding what is that client's need today, tomorrow, and forever. Meaning that no matter what happens in the markets, no ma no matter what happens in the technology space, it's highly unlikely that those needs are going to change. So finding those set of constants. And then kind of like optimizing the, towards those constants is, is actually a good approach as far as I'm concerned. And then uh, free the data is basically uh, measuring, uh, is it going to impact in a material way any one of those durable client needs? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then you're probably making data a little bit more free. If the answer is no, then you just have to think like, you know, maybe your needs are not properly understood or perhaps you're not actually doing what's right. Yeah. Now, before we we'll, we'll talk about those individual durable needs that you have identified. The first thing I want to do before we do that, though, is when when was the point in time you kind of wrote this down? You thought these are the three pillars in which I'm going to work. I'm going to, you know, kind of build my uh, philosophy around. Was it just a was it sort of thing that grew over time or was it just that aha moment that you thought this is exactly the three elements that I need to be thinking about? When when did that occur for you? Uh, well, I'd say uh, that was probably about a year ago, and uh, it was just a, a, a series of conversations with the people who are not necessarily doing data and financial data day to day. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to explain to them what is that I'm trying to deliver and what is that I'm trying to accomplish. And I felt that the message was not really resonating. And at the end of the day, a lot of that is still about, uh, you know, storytelling. And... Uh, I kind of like stole, uh, borrowed or, or got inspired, that's probably a better word, uh, with this uh, uh, concept uh, from Amazon where they, they like to write a press release, kind of uh, figure like yeah. before you did something, what would your announcement to the world look like when you are smashing success? Mm. And uh, so I figured like, why don't I try to write a press release about, um, building enterprise data platform for Morningstar. And if, when I announce it, let's say, uh, if it's like, you know, 2025 or 2026, and we're talking about it in the past tense, what are the things that you're really going to be proud about? And uh, it kind of, uh, it actually became much harder than I anticipated because I figured like, you know, if my mother-in-law can read and understand it, then I'm probably yeah. Saying, uh, saying it right, because press release is not going to people who are in the room with you all the time, it's going 100%. to people actually, like you have to speak human. And uh, to speak human, I noticed, or I realized that uh, 
we often uh, tend to tell the story we want to tell versus telling the story that people need to hear. And those are two very different dimensions. Uh, you, 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 like how often you come to the meeting or you have a client presentation and you just have so much you need to share without thinking how much of that people really need to know. And is that what they need, they need to hear? So press release, in my view, is an excellent exercise to translate what you want to tell as in, this is what I've done into this is why you care. And it's not an easy thing to go from this is what I've done to this is why you care. And I thought that uh, client needs are good anchors to turn my effort into value. So, yeah. so that's really, and, and, it, and it took me, and it, and it took me probably a good several months to go through multiple iterations uh, to get to the point where at least I believe that press release, this mock press release obviously resonated with people who don't work in a financial data industry to say, like, oh, perhaps it's actually getting closer to being able to explain the value of freeing the data. Like why are you doing it? Now I'm going to say right now, if you are listening and you feel the same way uh, about this as I do, please email in katherine.king at craniangroup.com with how that exercise went for you. Because I just know so many of our listeners, Alex, are going to go away and do this. And I think it's such a good exercise to do because as you say, that flipping narrative from here's what I've done versus here's what's interesting and useful to you is such a, it's such a thing that people are battling with day to day with getting the business bought in and that storytelling element. So uh, email in how that went for you because I'd be I'd be really keen to do do a follow-up piece uh on this so you've understood what these are so those durable needs from from my understanding are value rapid change and usability let's tackle all three I want to dive deep into into what those are for you and what they mean for you in terms of practically day-to-day how you're you're considering them so value and I mean value is such a huge topic right now it's pretty much on the top of every every agenda we're going to be discussing it later this year at the Business of Data Festival uh, again. Talk me through value. Uh, so um, uh, obviously, who, I don't think you can ask anybody who is in the business of providing or delivering data who wouldn't claim that they're the best value add or the best value for the mm-hmm. money, right? So that's, uh, again, that's uh, that's uh, totally natural. So so the biggest question is like, it's, it's very hard to argue that clients are looking for more value for the money they spent on data. And it's hard to argue that you can imagine the world when clients will demand less value for the money, right? So this, this is why I call it a durable need because this uh, value demand, it's, uh, it's uh, so intuitive and so natural, it's unlikely going to change. Yeah. But then the question is, what makes something valuable? Mm-hmm. And I view it as like, you know, one of the two ways. It's either a unique data set that, uh, or you need data product that tells you a story that nobody can, nobody else can. So for example, if you're uh, talking to a, uh, to a broker dealer or, or sell-side organization, uh, you know, they, they all write a lot, of, uh, a lot of fundamental research and equity research, but uh, each one of them does it. So, uh, uh, but uh, a few of them could actually give you uh, detailed credit card spending data on their consumers. So you would actually probably assign higher value on credit card spending data because that's mm-hmm. more unique and it's telling you some insight that nobody else will 
versus another analyst that actually ranks uh, stocks into buy, hold, and sell, where like everybody does it. So, so, so one is uh, a product or data set that gives you a unique uh, angle of data that nobody else does. So like truly unusual. And that changes with time, right? So like, you know, something that's, uh, that's, that's really forward looking mm. becomes uh, a commodity, right? So uh, um, like equity pricing data, for example, or even fixed income pricing data. Uh, fixed income pricing data used to be a differentiator. Now it's getting easier and easier to get your hands on this data. So it's uh, less unique, less valuable in a way. Yeah. Uh, the other component of making data um, valuable uh, in, is not necessarily the way the actual data set exists, but uh, the way you can commingle multiple non-unique data sets into, into a unique story. So, uh, for example, if somebody has um, ESG uh, company level research data, yeah. And then somebody has private equity data and somebody has public equity data and somebody has fixed income data. Uh, each of this product uh, unique in isolation, uh, each, each of these uh, data products in isolation is probably not particularly unique. But uh, when you take a number of non-unique data sets and combine them into a unique story, that is a great deal of value add. So, so storytelling with data as opposed to just giving you ingredient. Absolutely love that. So, so those are two things, you know, either a, either a, a highly unusual data set or an unusual way to combine them into into a story. A hundred percent. I always end up talking about food and I don't know whether it's the time of recording that I choose to do this, but I suppose it's a bit like, you know, you can take a pretty basic component of a recipe, say chicken, for example, and you add that in with something else that's a bit different. And suddenly you've got a really interesting meal that everyone wants to be tasting at a local restaurant. And it's similar with the data sets, right? That's, that's exactly right. It's basically a combination of all you can eat buffet, whereas like you get a lot of commodity uh, foods uh, and, uh, and you can self-serve versus a unique seven course tasting menu with wine pairing where it's really yeah. a combination of unique creativity of a chef. And uh, you can't get that the ingredients that the chef is using are basically common ingredients. You can mm. get them anywhere, but it's really how they put them together into a presentation, a meal that makes it unique. So that's a, a, an example where you take commodity data sets, but you put them together into a unique tasting menu that, mm -hmm. that sets you apart from, from the rest of your competition. And to extend that analogy, because I'm just going to run with this now, Alex, is when you haven't spoken to the business about their needs is the equivalent of being in a restaurant and not asking allergen information. And then you serve up a plate of meat to a vegan and they go, well, right. I can't have any of this. This is not tailored to me at all. And you have that disconnect where the data has provided the meal, but the business doesn't want to eat it because it's not got any reason to. Uh, so, it's, so it's a good, good analogy to, to run with. So that's the first durable need. Second being rapid change, which I feel like we've seen a lot of uh, in recent uh, years. Tell, tell me about that. Uh, and, and this is one of those things where like, uh, you know, people always talk about uh, the, the only constant is change. So there's a lot of cliche associated with the, uh, with the pace of change. But the, the reality is that uh, uh, any, any, at any point in time, there are probably more questions than answers. So depending on uh, who you're talking to, people are stressing out about things. Uh, what's going to happen to my portfolio? What is happening to my portfolio? Why is my returns uh, X versus Y? Mm -hmm. Where should I invest? Like, you know, what uh, what is the right asset? 
And again, I'm talking about investors. Obviously, this is this is my area of focus. But the big question people have is, what do I do with my money? And uh, and uh, you know, retiring with dignity and secure uh, the fear of people outliving their retirement money uh, with longevity uh, improving. Mm-hmm. Those are, those are real fears, and uh, it's incumbent on on us who are in the business of helping investors to figure those things out. So, with the premise of uh, uh, changes in the environment uh, prompt new questions. And you need today's question answer today as opposed to six months from today. How do you create your data uh, ecosystem in such a way that you can actually quickly figure out those answers? So uh, case in point, uh, uh, a lot of companies uh, associated with Russian Federation or associated with, uh, with, uh, with a number of people uh, within the Russian Federation mm-hmm. have been sanctioned, are being sanctioned, where sanctioned will be sanctioned which basically creates a lot of uh, questions. Uh, what can I trade? What do I need to unload from my portfolios? It's not a very obvious thing because this company structure is fairly complicated. It could be something domiciled in the uh, in Netherlands, registered in Cayman Islands. But in reality, it's like you know, 75% owned by, uh, by, by one of the Russian oligarchs. So, uh, so, so people have to put those uh, 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 trading blocks in their portfolios when those sanctions are announced as in like in the next 24 hours, as opposed to, hey, can you figure it out and uh, let me know in the next six months when you have it. So the notion of having enough data and ability to analyze this data quickly, in other words, you have the answer when the answer is needed, as opposed to uh, taking your sweet time. And if anything is, uh, is, uh, we're seeing right now is uh, obviously, the number of those permutations of the types of uh, anxiety-inducing questions is probably going to go up because the world is fairly complex versus going down, which means that you don't know what kind of data you'll need tomorrow. Uh, So what is your ability to actually get your hands on the right data to provide the right answer as quickly as possible, which means that if you have a very complex closed architecture where it takes forever to onboard a new data set or scrub the new data set, you're probably at competitive disadvantage versus somebody who has a much more open plug and play kind of architecture. So again, a lot of that drives into, uh, uh, drives some of your um, design and technology solutions. But uh, the the reason I view it as as a durable change or durable demand is I cannot imagine the world where clients will be demanding less speed to market. Absolutely. And the thing is, I want to say the phrase, we've created a rod for our own back, but that seems in, in, in a negative sense. But as with COVID, as with the, the situations that you've, you've just described there, Alex, the, the quicker we respond with data, the quicker we're able to support. It's never going to go back in time, as you say, right? It's, it, that you set the bar each time we, we respond to these things. And I, I often think of the retail industry when it comes to the pandemic and how quickly they had to understand their supply chains and how quickly they had to understand the, the local regional lockdown situations. They're never now going to go back to, to the old ways of reporting and understanding that they're always going to have that level of understanding. But how do you then make it sustainable and then build upon it is kind of the, the big question. So this what I love is what we're talking about right now is going to be so relevant to everyone listening, no matter what industry, because I feel we've all experienced it uh, uh, with the pandemic and then 
as geopolitical situations uh, unfortunately carry on, it's going to infect uh, uh, different different markets. Uh, uh, in, in, in 2008, a colleague of mine uh, said, in a bear market, you cannot outrun the bear, but you can outrun the guy next to you. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think this is this is true all the time. You cannot outrun the reality, but you can outrun the rest of the competition if you can get to uh, to those answers faster. So that's why I think time to market is a really critical component yeah. here. 100%. Running faster. And then the final one, and we're going to have so many great sound bites from this podcast, Alex. I'm loving it. The, the last one, the usability. Talk me through that. Uh, so so it's, uh, it's really uh, figuring out the uh, ease of use. I can't tell you over my career how many times I had conversations with uh, clients or practitioners who basically say 70% of my time or 70% of my uh, staff is uh, dedicated to uh, data uploading, scrubbing, matching, and commingling. And 30% of my time is actually spent doing my job. And it has to be absolutely uh, flipped. Mm. So... Uh, as the number of data sources and data providers is growing, that complexity of how do I tell the story by taking 74 different data providers and putting them together into a master record, uh, uh, that, that complexity is actually becoming uh, quite uh, overwhelming. So, uh, and, and uh, the thing is like, you know, biologically, our brains have probably not developed much since like 20,000 years ago. We can still process one thought at a time. Mm -hmm. Our capacity of absorbing and retaining information hasn't substantially changed in 20,000 years, but the amount of information in the universe had actually grown quite substantially. Uh, social media, uh, unofficial media, official media, uh, uh, market data, all sorts of things. We're getting inundated with this like you know, incredible volumes of data. And every day there is a new provider who says, like, don't I have the most valuable, valuable data set for you? It's like you don't, you don't even have time to uh, in a day to actually figure out like is that what you need? So so the problem becomes you have a very very limited capacity of absorbing uh, information, and you have infinite and exponentially growing amounts of data. And how do you jam these incredible volumes into a tiny capacity that our brains can process? And that's what I view a um, the notion of convenience. How do you actually make it easy for people? or users or consumers to figure out what is that they need and actually deliver it in front of them on a screen, on a, on a, on a piece of paper, in a report based on, the, based on, the, on, on their requirements. Mm -hmm. So uh, taking infinity into a small finite report that you need with the least amount of effort, so you don't actually spend your career doing that, is, is important. So that's why, again, I view it as a durable need because I cannot imagine the world where clients will ever be demanding, uh, demanding less convenience. Yeah, yeah, please make it harder to do my job. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I want to spend more time uh, you know, collecting and scrubbing data. That's probably <laughs> unlikely to happen. A hundred percent. So just, just to recap for the listeners there. So value, rapid change, usability really really core cool, uh, uh thoughts there, Alex. thank you so much and it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today now i know we're, we're vastly running out of time and i always love to end the podcast on the same question which is as our listeners end with us today go about their days do what they're going to do uh, after the episode end what do you want them to be thinking about as they go into their day what's the top takeaway uh, that you would like them to be considering 
Well, uh, to, to me, it's a, it's always the same question: Why, right? So, so I think it it sounds boring and repetitive, but at the end of the day, it's like, what's in it for clients? And I can't tell you how many times I had a presentation or a discussion or or or, or an update, and I'll go through what I thought was a killer presentation. At the end of the day, people pause and say, "Okay, so what do I tell my clients? Are they going to get their data faster? Is it going to be better? Is it going to be more accurate?" And it's like, oh. Right. So, so at the end of the day, it's still when you keep asking yourself, what's in it for clients? Um, this is something I, I constantly ask myself. And I think that's an excellent question to, uh, to have in mind. Amazing. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining so much for giving me the opportunity. No, you're most welcome. And uh, I'm looking forward to receiving those emails to see how the, uh, the PR uh, uh, stint has gone because I'm, I'm excited uh, to, to see those press releases. But uh, wonderful. We'll speak soon. Thank you very much, Catherine. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. Do be sure to subscribe and follow the Business of Data podcast wherever you're currently listening to ensure you're always first in line to the latest episode. We'd also appreciate your review as well. So if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. And as always, find us on socials as well as heading over to the Business of Data platform for more forms of great content, including articles, blogs and video. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and we'll see you real soon.